Well, in this hour, what we want to look at is the second coming, and there are literally hundreds of passages that refer to the second coming. Obviously, we will not look at all of them. In fact, many of them somewhat tell us similar truths, but let me give you a brief introduction, and then we'll look at some of those, and one of the things I do want to do is look at at least the major ones, and we'll somewhat summarize this whole doctrine, and let's begin with a quote by Lewis Sperry Chafer, which I like. He describes the second coming, he says it has unique, the unique distinction of being the first prophecy uttered by man, and he's referring to the Jude passage. Now, it's not specifically second coming, but it does somewhat speak to a messianic figure or personage, and Jude would be the first prophecy concerning the coming of a Messiah. And in this case, it would be the second coming, because he's referring to judgment in that passage. And, Chafer goes on, and the last message from the ascended Christ, as well as being the last word of the Bible. So he's referring to the Acts passage, where we have the last message from the ascended Christ, when he ascended to the disciples, and then the last words of the Bible are words from Christ as well, that he will come quickly. Revelation 22, 20 through 21. Good quote. Mm-hmm. The second coming is a unique distinction of being the first prophecy uttered by man and the last message from the ascended Christ as well as being the last word of the Bible. And I like what Titus 2.13 tells us, in fact, encourages us to be looking for the blessed hope. So this is an application we can draw right off the bat. Even though some would say, talking about eschatology, talking about second coming, that's, that's just sensationalism. I don't think Paul viewed it that way. I think it should be a perspective on living every day. In other words, I want to make the most of this day because it may be on this day that we experience the blessed hope. It's a blessed hope, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And I think if we're walking in the Spirit, we yearn for that. We desire to experience release from temptation, release from these sinful bodies, release from pain, release from the things of this world in order to experience the full glory and experience of our salvation in Christ Jesus. So this is a blessed doctrine because it gives us a blessed hope. Now, unfortunately, again, theologians take a variety of views, most of them unbiblical and most of them with very little support. For example, some view the second coming as the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord came in the form of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, coming of the Holy Spirit. Another view is the preterist view. The second coming, remember what did we say about their viewpoint? How do they view the second coming? Yep, it already happened, and it came in the form of judgment. And 70 A.D. is the second coming of Christ. When Israel was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, that is the second coming. There are some that see the conversion of the world. Now, this would be a post-millennial view. 
that that is the second coming because when the world is converted, then we enter into a thousand-year period of time. Let's see. Not every post-millennialist would hold that view, but some do. Some just view Christian death as a second coming because we go to be with the Lord. And in that sense, we are at the second coming the moment we die. And probably the largest number of people believe that the second coming is a spiritual coming. It could include some of the others that we've just mentioned here. For example, W.N. Clark holds this view. He says that uh, the work of Christ has already begun. So he came again in his spiritual presence, and his coming is not in one event. It was introduced with the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is Clark still. And there will be no visible return to earth, but only a long, steady advance of his spiritual kingdom. And our view is we take a literal approach to all of Scripture, including things at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, and things at the end dealing with eschatology. And we believe that there is a literal pre-millennial coming of Jesus Christ. And we've defended that throughout this course. With the preterist, um, what about seven destruction? That's it. In other words, when he he came in those... um, through those observations, that this presence was what caused those events. Yes, in other words, yeah. In other words, he came in judgment, and they would use oh, all the passage. They would use all the passages that deal with him judging at his coming, which are legitimate passages, and that's what he's going to do. But they would all put them back in seventy A.D. So it's a replacement. Israel, it tends to replace the Israel and the churches. Mm-hmm. So, Rome was used as his instrument? Yes. Yeah. And they would say God has used a variety of instruments to bring judgment. He used used water for the Genesis flood. He used fire from heaven, Sodom and Gomorrah. He used the nation of Israel for the Canaanites during the conquest. He used the Babylonians for the Jews when the Jews were destroyed in the Old Testament. And at 70 AD, he used the Roman Empire. That's what they would say. When is he coming for <laughs> He already came. <laughs> Don't you get it? <laughs> but, uh, so the, the preterists... That's, well, that's, that would be the full preterists. The moderate preterists still have a future coming. But they would almost see a two-part coming. He would be coming in judgment in the first century, but he would come in a more literal way at the end of time. The, the, the modified, like Sproul... He would hold that second view. When you say he's coming here, though, the premillennial view, um, you're distinguishing his, the, the rapture from the second coming when he puts his feet on the ground. Not yet, but, but, but yes, you're going to. Okay. Yes, we're gonna we're gonna just make a distinction. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we see it kind of like what we said last time about judgments. Uh, we we contrasted the general view is that there's one final judgment. Everything is the great white throne. In other words, that's the only judgment. All these other judgments are the same as the great white throne, kind of that thing. And premillennial view sees a judgment, the Bema, which is different. We see the judgment of seven years as different. We see the judgment of the nation of Israel as different. We see the judgment of the nations as different. So we see these distinctions. Similarly, with the coming of the Lord, we see a, a twofold distinction a coming for his saints and a coming basically to establish a kingdom.
and you were saying then, who is it that thinks all those judgments are in one? Greg, what's your name? Is that Kroger's? Um, yeah, I think they would fall into that camp, but amillennialists, postmillennialists, virtually all amillennialists. Yep. Well, they're reading the same one, but they're reading it with uh, spiritualized eyes. They're far more spiritual than us. Remember? <laughs> yeah. Gotta give credit for that. <laughs> we are so what earthly and literal, and and obviously there are not only distortions, but there are those that even mock his coming. And Peter describes them in Second Peter three three through four. Know this first of all that in the last days. Now, Peter is probably thinking in his own day, too. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. You might even include their interpretive lusts as well. Verse 4, saying, where is the promise of his coming? And if you read on, in other words, everything is the same as it's always been. In other words, there's no dramatic events in world history. There is no spectacular coming of a messianic figure, and we won't read the rest of it, but Peter refutes that by pointing out that they're mistaken in that God has intervened in a radical way, and the second coming that premillennials, this is Peter, he referred to (laughs) premillennials, A literal approach sees that there have been radical things that have taken place in history where God has intervened. He uses creation, and he's referring to the very good creation. A couple of phrases that summarize that. The earth formed out of water. That's a radical event. He doesn't specifically refer to the fall in that passage, but that's a radical event. He kind of alludes to it when he talks about the world at that time, at the time of the flood. That's a fallen world at the time of the flood, affected by the fall. The curse was a radical event. And he does refer to the flood, and he talks about the flood destroying, or the world that was destroyed by the Genesis flood. That was a radical event. And I think all of nature was affected by what God accomplished during the Genesis flood. In fact, this is from my creation stuff here. I use this passage and this concept. I use the concept of the second coming and resurrection, which a lot of old earthers believe in, because a lot of them kind of spiritualize these early chapters. And what Peter is arguing here, the flood was a radical event. So he's kind of arguing with the mockers and saying what your your assumption of uniformitarianism is not even a scientific assumption. Things have not always been the same. And here's the proof. Therefore, he looks to a new heaven and a new earth, which is different from the world we experience. And he talks about after judgment and destruction in that passage. And I use this chart in my creation talks. To, In fact, this is the foundation for my, my view of, of an approach to science that is different from a secular approach to science. And I'm talking about science now. Uh, I think there's a biblical approach. I need to write a book. If I could write it, I would do it. But my writing skills are elementary. Anyway, the basis for this is there is a radical event. There is a creation. There's nothing before that. There's no big bang. There's not a kind of an eternity of evolution here. And that creation 
comes out of the hand of God very good. It is radically different. All of the constants are different now than they were in Genesis 1 and 2. All of the conditions are different. The fall affected everything, and I go through kind of all of the little details in Genesis chapter 3 that indicate every science is affected by the fall. And you can go to zoology, anthropology, geophysics, even astrophysics. There's little notes in there. So the fall affected all of science, and we are not living in a very good world right now. We're living in a cursed world. So that's a radical change, very radical. And in fact, there are no observers, so you you can't conduct an experiment because nature is different from what it was before the fall. And the same is true with the flood, everything before the flood. Pre-flood, the environment is different, and I go through a list of things there. All of geology is different. Climatology is different. We live under in a different climate climatology environment than the pre-flood people did. Uh, even animals are somewhat different before after. Longevity of life, for example, is different before and after. And there's a lot of these things that are noted in the Genesis passage. So we have a radical change. The Noahic Covenant, I believe, established a stable environment. We're living... Post-flood, we're living in the post-flood environment. Now, there was an adjustment shortly after the flood, but basically the laws of science have been fixed by the Genesis flood. And there's scripture that indicates this, by the way, in Jeremiah. So we're living under the Noahic covenant after crucifixion of Christ, and there's going to be a radical change on the chart there at the second coming. In fact... We have the first fruits of that change in Jesus Christ's resurrection. A resurrection body has characteristics that are different from our mortal bodies. And I give a series of examples. Uh, resurrection body is not, is not affected by the law of gravity, for example. So you can go through science. A resurrection body, I'm not sure it's affected by the molecular properties of walls, for example. You know, you can walk, Jesus seemed to walk through walls in a closed environment when the disciples were gathered on a Sunday. So the laws of nature are different in terms of a resurrection body. So we have the first fruits of that. And when Christ comes at his second coming, we will be in resurrected bodies. And in the millennial kingdom, there's all kinds of passages that indicate the whole environment's different. Lions laying down with lambs, greater fertility in terms of... Uh, plant life, and even crops and animals and that sort of thing. It seems to indicate, Isaiah 65.20, that there's longevity of life, again, restored. Kind of a hint in that passage. The whole environment is going to be different. So that's what Peter is is indicating in chapter 3, and this is what we anticipate. We anticipate a radically different world, and from the premillennial viewpoint, what we anticipate is a kingdom that is radically different than the environment we live in now. And in fact, we will be different because we will experience resurrection. And in Acts, it refers to a refreshing in Acts chapter 3. That's why I use that. Miracles throughout time are just little snippets showing that God is sovereign over the physical realm. And you can see how you can tie all those to science. In other words... How do you change H2O, chemistry, to one of the most complex molecules, uh, a biological molecule, in what we call wine? That's a radical change there. 
how does Jesus totally shut down climatology when he stills the wind? I mean, these are radical things. So miracles are just an example throughout periods of time where God intervenes to either reverse or uh, alter laws of nature. There's a thumbnail sketch in my book. During the millennial kingdom, things kind of decline. Mm-hmm. So will they decline because of the sins? When we talk about the millennial kingdom, we'll talk a little bit about that. You're jumping <laughs> I don't think there's a decline, but I think there's Satan is released, and I think with that, the deception that comes along with it captures unbelievers to rebellion, but not a decline. But if people are still born with the sin nature, then... That stuff happens as in nature. Yeah, but it's suppressed because Jesus is ruling. So, this is an important doctrine. So let's spend a little time talking about its importance. The importance of the doctrine of the second coming. It is an emphasis of scripture, and I'm going to give you more of this later when we talk about its certainty. I'm going to give you specific passages, but there are hundreds of passages in the Old Testament that refer generally to both. In other words, it doesn't separate first and second comings, but when you come to the New Testament and begin to to see that some aspects were fulfilled in the first coming, but some aspects were not fulfilled in the second coming, you separate them out, then there's still a heavy emphasis on hundreds of passages referring to the second coming. And similarly, in the New Testament, over 300 prophecies referring to the second coming, sometimes whole chapters, for example, in a couple of chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, and the whole book of Revelation, basically. So a lot of emphasis. This is not sensationalism. This is a major doctrine, and it gives us perspective on living. I've said before that a fourth... In our introduction, a fourth of all of Scripture was prophetic when it was written. And the main emphasis of those prophetic passages is a messianic figure at the heart of those passages. It's not just predicting kind of random events or random historical events, but most of them are related to the second coming in some way. So virtually a fourth of all of Scripture, you could say in some way, contributes to a concept of a coming of Messiah. You might also say of the 46 Old Testament prophets, 36 speak of events of the second coming. So only 10 do not, and those are particularly related to the nation of Israel itself. I've got a number here, 1,725 Old Testament passages referring to the coming, so... Not only hundreds, but a little over a thousand there. Fifteen twenty-seven. There's fifteen hundred twenty-seven Old Testament passages, mm-hmm. and those are passages on the second coming. Second or the coming, at least the second coming. In other words, it, it probably has both, but yeah. And there are some isolated passages that just refer to the second. Sheila. Similar question: um, Are they second coming because they weren't friends? No. First and. No, there's no distinction in the Old Testament. There's no distinction, but there are some that have, no aspects of them have been fulfilled. Uh, An example might be, the one that comes to mind is Zechariah 14, where it talks about him setting foot on the Mount of Olives. I mean, that has nothing to do with the first coming, yet it's a passage of the coming of Messiah, and obviously it takes up the second. Eric? I was just thinking, the passage that Jesus from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he didn't finish all of verse 2. Mm -hmm. 
Because the second part of verse 2 dealt with the judgment of the right. second coming. Yeah, he stopped short. He stopped short and said, exactly. this has been fulfilled. We have to. Right. And when the first part was being fulfilled at that moment. Yeah, when I go over that passage, I always accuse Jesus of using bad hermeneutics. He stops <laughs> in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> but in fact, it's good hermeneutics because uh, he's dealing with a distinction in one coming. In, the in fact, the uh, there was a popular rabbinic view that there had to be two messiahs in order to be able to fulfill all those passages. There had to be a suffering messiah, and then there had to be a conquering, victorious messiah. And the way they resolved some of those conflicting ideas was there just had to be two messiahs. And what Jesus clarifies is there's two comings of one messiah, the same messiah. Well, the disciples just couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that you're going to die. And he kept telling them. That's right. How? You're the Messiah. Yeah. He should have said, read Isaiah 53. <laughs> I don't know why he didn't do that. <laughs> okay, so it's the emphasis of Bible. I think it's key to Scripture. It's it's key to understanding a lot of other doctrines. You, you can't even understand soteriology fully unless you have a second coming, where Jesus is going to reverse the effects of the fall on us personally. And there's a lot of passages that speak of us that we're going to be like him when we are with him. And it's referring to his second coming there. You can't fully understand Christology. This is an important element of all that Christ is. So you can't really understand Christology. So it's key to understanding scripture and doctrines and theology. We know he's a prophet because of uh, Matthew 24 and 25. Book of Hebrews says he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, what about his kingship? That's a whole aspect that is not fulfilled in the first coming. The government's not resting on his shoulders. It's not till he returns that he will establish a kingdom. So you can't even understand Christology. You can't understand even uh, things like Genesis 3.15, because to have a resolution of Genesis 3.15... A final resolution of sin, you have to have a something that affects that final resolution. And the second coming doesn't completely do it, but it makes a huge step in accomplishing fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. So, so a preterist could have uh, either an earthly or a spiritual kingdom. Yeah, yeah some of them tend to be amillennials. Mm-hmm. And there's other things we could talk about. A lot of the types in the Bible, point to a second coming and hundreds of promises, even practical things like the ordinances of the church. When we celebrate communion, for example, we do it, what did Jesus say? Do it until what? Until he returns. Yeah. Baptism implies the resurrection that takes place at the first phase of his coming. So the preterist, again, I keep going back to that, but... Yeah, it's on your mind. I guess they shouldn't be celebrating communion now. You know, they shouldn't. That's a good point. Or the, or <laughs> the first aspect of it is doing in remembrance of it. So they're looking back to it, but not forward. the second. And I think Paul is looking forward. Exactly. Yeah, you got to bring that one up to your... Yeah. I am. <laughs> Ask him, <laughs> how come you take communion? Yeah. <laughs> this well, is our hope. Proclaim the Lord's death until... Until he comes, Yeah. yeah. That's in, uh, what is uh, it? First Corinthians. 11. First Corinthians. Yeah, First Corinthians was written before 70 AD, so. <laughs> so you shouldn't, uh, 
like you say. Hmm? You shouldn't use that one. No, you should. Oh, oh. That supports his argument that you should have ended it in 70 AD. <laughs> <laughs> I'm burning better. <laughs> <laughs> Getting lots of ammunition. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, the hope of the church. This is this is our hope. This is what we yearn and anticipate. We already saw the Titus passage, but you can include First John two three. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, resurrected bodies, because we shall see him just as he is in a resurrected body. So it's our hope. And it's a motivator. It's an incentive to live the Christian life because everything around us is temporal. Any suffering, any hardship, Any worries, these are all temporal because we anticipate that blessed hope. So it should motivate us, just like all of prophecy does. It should encourage a holy life, holy living. It should encourage perseverance, watchfulness, waiting. We're encouraged along those lines, waiting for the coming. In fact, this 1 John 3, 2 is, uh, is our desire and hope, so we are watchful for it. 3, 2. 3, 2. It's also a warning concerning areas of deception, and there's going to always be deception, even though in the end there's going to be an intensification of it. So it should encourage us to live the Christian life. And it's very important because it gives us the consummation of all things. In other words, the fulfillment of God's plan. And it's good to know the end. If you know the end, then you can kind of align yourself to where God is moving all of events. And without it, the Bible would be incomplete. We wouldn't have a picture of how it all ends. It's kind of like putting together a puzzle. You know, you have the cover on the box. You know what it's supposed to look like at the end once you get all the pieces there. So now you can fit all of the pieces into that puzzle because you have... You know what the end looks like. This, is, In other words, this is how it's supposed to look like. So I look for parts of it and fill in where the pieces fit. We have the box of world history. We know what it's going to look like. We can fit our little pieces into that plan that God has. So this is very important. There are several purposes that we can identify by looking at some of the passages and I've got a list of them here. I think the main one, it's a revelation. The second coming is a revelation. In fact, that's the title of the book of Revelation. It's the revelation. And by the way, a lot of people call the book of Revelation, Revelations, plural. Hmm? There's only one revelation. There's, There's only one. It's singular. That's a common description of it. But it's the revelation, and it's of his glory. And the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, a full picture of who he is. A picture that was not seen in his earthly ministry. It's the glorified Christ. And ultimately, this brings glory to God. And many of the passages are passages of glorious descriptions, particularly those that pertain specifically to the second coming. So we glorify Christ glorify God himself. And there's lots of passages. We'll look at some of them as we proceed here. It's also... 
You could say glorification has a purpose of glorification. Now, this is more specific. This pertains to us. We will be rescued and removed from these sinful bodies, rescued from temptation, res- rescued from suffering at the first phase of the coming. We could describe that as having a glorification purpose. There's a salvation, a future salvation purpose of the second coming. The second coming between the rapture and the actual arrival, you might say, or setting foot on planet Earth. There's a salvation of Israel and Gentiles. That seven-year period, the purpose of that is salvation, one of them. Salvation for Israel and Gentiles. And the greatest revival that the world has ever seen is yet future. During the seven-year period, we describe that. It also has a purpose of judgment. Judgment of unbelieving nations or unbelieving Gentiles. Also judgment of all of the enemies. We looked at that last time. Fifthly, it's a transformational purpose. Transformation. All of creation is transformed. We just looked at that. We just described that. There's going to be a restoration to something similar to the garden. It's part of the resolving of the issue of evil, where the curse is partially lifted during the millennial kingdom, and then eventually totally lifted after the kingdom or at the end of it. So So you're talking about new creation. Yes, yes. And then eventually there's a new heavens and a new earth, which I would say refers to the eternal state. So it's a total transformation. And there's a ruling purpose. He's coming to rule, to establish a kingdom, and to rule over that kingdom. This is the fifth kingdom that has no end that Daniel describes. See, there you have six major purposes, so you need one more, right? That's right, we have space for one more. It's a consummating purpose. He's going to bring all things to its consummation. All of world history, all promises, all covenants, all of his plan. So it's a consummation purpose. So we have a revelational purpose, glorification purpose, a still yet future salvation purpose, future judgment purpose, transforming of creation purpose, a ruling in a kingdom purpose, and a consummating of all things. Very important doctrine. You want to neglect this doctrine? It has all these elements. I can give you a history of the doctrine. Kind of in broad strokes, I think the apostles and the writers of Scripture were primarily premillennial. They were primarily literalists. And I think this parallels the general history that I gave you on eschatology in general and interpretation and what happened. Historically, what happened is after hundreds of years and Christ did not come, along with all of the other degenerations that took place during the church. The church began to reinterpret passages, and when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, or coming quickly, or how to reinterpret those passages, well, we've been waiting hundreds of years now, where where is the coming? So, in the time of Augustine, and probably seeds were laid before that for an idea that, well, maybe we've misinterpreted these passages. Maybe maybe we need to take a different approach, maybe a non-literal approach. Maybe we're looking too literally at these passages. So a non-literal approach began to set in, allegorism or allegorizing, 
or at least spiritualizing of passages, particularly these spectacular passages like second coming passages and a more non-literal approach, particularly with the kingdom. Maybe Christ already came. Maybe, uh, maybe the second coming is not as literal as we think. Maybe the kingdom is not as literal. Maybe we're living in the kingdom. So for virtually hundred years after that, hundreds of years after that, to up to the Reformation, now a non-literal approach began to set in, and amillennialism was basically the view of the time. And this is during a Roman Catholic dominance of Christianity, and only small pockets of non-Roman Catholics that were more literal who have always existed, by the way. God has always maintained a, a remnant. Protestant Reformation was really a reformation of hermeneutics and approach to Scripture, and a more literal approach was taken. And just unfortunately, the Reformers, I think they had their hands full with the doctrine of soteriology and didn't devote themselves necessarily to eschatology because they just adopted the eschatology of the Roman Catholic Church. The reformers were amillennial as well. It wasn't until later that people began from, as a result of this more literal approach, probably 1700s or so, that people started to look at prophetic scriptures in a more literal way. And since then, there has been uh, a return, I think, to premillennialism from a literal approach. And if you remember in our introduction, the difference between a premillennial approach and all other approaches is hermeneutics. All other approaches take a non-literal approach to eschatology. It's only the premillennial view that attempts to take passages from a grammatical, historical, contextual approach. So after the Reformers, the few later, 1700s, 1800s, did premillennialism begin to restore itself. And since then, there have been all of the other approaches that followed as well. Uh, premillennialism has never been the dominant viewpoint. Amillennialism is still the dominant viewpoint today. So God still has room. He still has room. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, there's the history. The thumbnail. So that's your introduction. Let's talk about the certainty. And I'd like to devote some time because of the not only the various views, but also because the church today kind of shies away from this whole doctrine. And I think it's good to give... Christians kind of a sense that what God says he means and when he speaks of future things he means it and particularly the second coming because if the second coming is shaky then everything else in the future is shaky so all this is is basically a kind of a survey just a survey of some of the major passages to kind of emphasize this certainty okay let's look up some passages here Sheila, why don't you start us off, look up Psalm 2.6, and Vivian, Genesis 49.10, Mark, Psalm 110, Psalm 72.19, Jim, Isaiah 9, and then we'll come back to Sheila, Jeremiah, Vivian, Daniel, Mark, Zechariah. we got Psalm 2.6, and I'm just emphasizing kind of we have a consistent... Revelation in the Old Testament, and these are just kind of some of the major ones. And by the way, you can add these just to your list of Old Testament passages that refer to the second coming. Some of them combine first and second comings, but the emphasis on all of these are second coming. Psalm 2 6, 
Yet I have set my king on my side. God has set His king. In fact, it's phrased as if it's already accomplished, like it's already done. Now, from heaven's perspective, it is done. It is certain. As far as time and you and I and our perspective, it is yet future. But the, from the perspective of the psalmist, it is done. God has set His king. He has not begun to reign on earth yet. All the way in the book of Genesis, one of the first messianic passages, not the first, but one of them is Moses himself. So the Lord in Psalm two six. Now Moses forty nine ten. This is Jacob. Um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the. Yeah, it's Jacob, but remember, this is kind of an oracle of prophetic peace revelation from God. The scepter shall not depart. So the, the the rulership, there's going to be a kingship, rulership. This is in Genesis, before there's even a nation, until Shiloh comes. That's messianic. Mark, David himself, Psalm 110, verse 2 at least. Start in verse 1, read verse 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now that's hand. interesting, isn't it? Yahweh says to Adonai. I think that's either that or Adonai says to Yahweh there. The Lord says to my Lord. Old Testament Trinitarian passage. The Messianic figure passage. Keep reading. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Have his enemies been made a footstool yet? Not yet. When does that happen? The last one treated is death, but before that is Satan's second coming. Okay, so keep reading. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your mouth, your youth, are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There's priesthood, but there's also kingship. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. That's the second coming. That's Armageddon. That's another Armageddon passage. Not clearly tied there, but that's when that happens. So David, and you can read the rest of the psalm, and it's messianic, and it pertains primarily to second coming. Solomon, 70, Psalm seventy-two, nineteen. And blessed be... His glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen. Whose glory? This is messianic. This is kingdom. If you want one from Job, I don't have it on the screen, Job 19.25. And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the spiritual earth. Nope. On the earth. He's going to take his stand. That's second coming. Job 19.25. Isaiah 9.6 and 7. You get that one? Oh, he jumped ahead already. Well, he's looking up. Well, you got that one memorized. You don't need to get that one. I'll read uh, 40.10. Behold, the Lord will come with might and with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his sword is with him. What is that? That's second coming. He's going to come, second coming. Then the last little part of that. 
and his recompense before him. In other words, he has judgment coming. Okay, nine. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's incarnation. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That's second coming. Keep reading. And his name will be called Wonderful Counsel, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's how he will be identified during the Millennial Kingdom. So that's second coming. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And there's lots in Isaiah, several in Isaiah. Jeremiah, you got 23, 5, and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, Israel will well saved. Now this is the name. And that name is Lord, our righteousness. Okay, that's messianic, that's kingly, that's reigning as king, that's millennial. So, not only the Lord himself, Psalm 2, not only Moses through Jacob, Genesis 49, not only David, and by the way, there's several in, in the Psalms by David, by the way, not just Psalm 110, not only Solomon, not only Isaiah, but in Jeremiah, but Daniel, very clear. Here's one of the clearest passages as well. This is also a Trinitarian passage, Vivian, 7, 13, and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up and to by, me. By the way, let me stop you there. One like a son of man. In other words, it had some resemblance to humanity. In fact, I think Jesus, when he identifies himself as the son of man, and he referred to himself as the son of man more often than he referred to himself as the son of God. I think this is what he's looking at. This is the passage he's referring to. Son of man. Keep reading. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There's millennial kingdom. Second coming, preceding. He's going to receive a kingdom. He's going to establish the kingdom. And the Ancient of Days, that's the second person here. This Ancient of Days, probably the Father giving the kingdom to the Son. If you want Ezekiel, there's some in Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel 20, I don't have Ezekiel on there because it didn't fit on the slide. It's the only reason. 33 and 34, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. When he comes, he's coming with judgment. I shall be king over you. There's rulership. And I shall bring you out from the peoples. He's going to regather Israel. This is to Israel, right? On the occasion of their destruction by the Babylonians, he's going to bring them out and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, and with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. That's second coming. So Ezekiel, and if you want one from Joel, you can add Joel 3.16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. That's during tribulation, and it extends to his coming. Zechariah 14, you, Mark? In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle, from east to west, by a very large valley. 
so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountain will each will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Okay, that's good enough. The actual location of his setting foot on the earth, Mount of Olives. And if you read that context, he talks about the kingdom as well. Same context. So it's millennial, and it's obviously as a result of the second coming. Now you skip down to verse 9, right? Did you read verse 9? I didn't read 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name. He will be king in that day. Referring back to the same context. So that's Zechariah. If you want one out of Malachi, Malachi 3, 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? It's going to be an awesome day. Who's going to be able to endure second coming? And who can stand when he appears? There's going to be an appearing. For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He's going to be a refiner to Israel. New Testament is equally adamant in giving us the certainty. We won't read these, but we'll come back to Matthew 24 and 25. That's the Olivet Discourse, Jesus himself. But this is in Matthew, so you might say Matthew had held this view. Mark, same Olivet Discourse, Mark 13. Luke, Acts 1, 11. In fact, let's read these. Do Jim, Acts 1, 11. Eric, Philippians 3.20, Hebrews 9.28, that comes back to Sheila, Vivian, James 5.7-8, Mark, John 3.2. Then we'll have Jim read the entire book of Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fun to read it this weekend. Anyway, yeah. And, uh, and they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's going to come back in the same way that they saw him leave. That's the passage describing the ascension. He's going to go, he went in a glorified body. He's going to return in a glorified body. He's going to be visible. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to be glorious. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Eric. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. There's another passage, eagerly waiting, we anticipate it. Keep reading. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of his glory by the exertion of power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Okay, that's a description of the second coming. Sheila, Hebrews 8, 9, 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of men to those who will appear a second time, apart from sin or salvation. Appear a second time. There's second coming in the New Testament. James 5, 7, and 8. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. From the practical, second coming encourages us patience. Gonna, everything's going to end in terms of suffering or hardship. Be patient. First John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. 
We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. When he appears, that second coming. So that's the certainty of the second coming. Let's look at some phrases that give us a description of that coming. First of all, the the specific terms. There are several Greek terms. You might want to jot these down. Probably the one that is best known because people transliterate it into English, parousia. Parousia, that's a word that in some context referred to the coming of a high-level official or king or a person of prominence. You could use that word to refer to somebody that was making a state visit to your city, maybe, let's say. And you would refer to it as coming. It has the sense of this presence, kind of a sense of presence as well, parousia. It's used in terms of the coming of Christ. And sometimes it's translated presence in some translations. Sometimes it's translated coming, parousia. And there are several words related to that. In fact, it would be good to do a word study on it. Why doesn't everybody turn to Matthew 24 and notice verse 27? By the way, three of these words are going to occur right in this context. That's why I want you to turn there. Verse 27, first of all. Actually, before that, verse 3. Verse 3. Sheila, do you want to do 3? 24-3. Matthew 24-3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came privately and tell us, when will these things be the sign of the age? Parousia. Sign of your coming in the end of the age. Vivian, skip to verse 27. Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The parousia coming, or the presence, the coming of the Lord. You can also include, and by the way, there's several passages. I, didn't, I should have put a count in there. First Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want another one in Peter, 2 Peter 3.4, we won't read that one. So that's one of the words. There's also epiphania, translated sometimes an appearance or a manifestation. You could translate it in that way as well. And First Timothy 6.14. And you keep the commandments without stain or reproach until the, it's translated, appearing here. Same way it's translated for Arusia, but here it's the... Epiphania. We get the English word, probably, an epiphany. Yeah, it's probably where we get the word. There's a verbal form that we'll look at next. Phanerao, that also is appearing. That's the verb form, to appear or an appearing. Colossians 3, 4 is one passage. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed. A revealing, a manifestation, an appearing, that you can visually see. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We will be revealed as well. In other words, people will see our new nature, the revelation of the new nature. And this one occurs in the Matthew 24 passage, verse 30. Mark, do you want to read verse 30? And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Okay, stop there. 
See the word there? Will appear. That's panerao. So in verse 3 and in verse 27, we have parousia. And now in verse 30, panerao will appear. Who's that in Mark? No, this is Matthew 24, verse 30. And we have a fourth one, pakalupto. That's the verb form. An unveiling. Sometimes it's translated a revealing. That's the word that we have in the book of Revelation 1 1. The apocalypsis, the noun form, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, etc. The noun form, Revelation 1 1. And 1 Corinthians 1 7. Pakalupto, the verb form, so that you are not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. An unveiling or a revealing. And then there's the common everyday word of coming. And most of the usages of this word, just coming in a sense, I came to class. Or the students arrived or came to class. You know, just any kind of coming. And it's a very common word, but... In some contexts, it's used specifically of the coming of, of Christ, just in the everyday sense. How do you pronounce it? Erkomai, Erkomai, coming. And that one is Matthew. You can use Matthew sixteen twenty-seven. For the Son of Man is going to come, Erkomai, in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. That's second coming. Verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What's the occasion of this passage here? Transfiguration, Transfiguration chapter 17, the next passage. But he uses Erkamai here. But he's referring to a vision they'll have or a picture or a visual, I guess you could say, of the second coming in the Transfiguration. So those are the words... And another one, well, I gave you that one, the Matthew 16, 27, and 28 for Erechimai. And there's others as well. First Thessalonians 5, 2 for Erechimai. Those are the terms. And gathering from all of the passages, some of them we read, and there's others as well, we could say that his coming is physical. And a specific one is that Zechariah 14, 4, where he will set foot on the Mount of Olives. It is sudden. You can use that in Matthew twenty four twenty seven. It'll be like lightning that flashes in the east and flashes even to the west. Sudden. There's others as well. It's rapid. Revelation twenty two seven. Behold, I'm coming quickly. It's going to be a rapid coming. You could even say instantaneous. Bodily. The one that Jim read. Acts one eleven. It's a bodily return. Just like his resurrection, we believe in a bodily resurrection. We believe in a bodily return. It's unexpected. There's some passages amongst unbelievers. It's going to be very unexpected. But Matthew 24 also speaks of its unexpected arrival. It is personal. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself personally will descend from heaven. And the verse goes on. It's triumphant, comes to rule. All the passages that include rulership, it's visible. That Matthew twenty four thirty, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. They will see the Son of Man. 
coming on the clouds. Revelation 1.7, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So it's visible. It's even audible. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. So it's visible. It's audible. Same one. Well, no, 31, 24, 31. Sorry about that. Glorious, Matthew 20, the same passage, 24, 30, in glory. He comes in glory. Same passage with clouds, with angels. That's the Revelation 19, 14, with angels. Also, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, with the saints. Now, wait a minute, let's see. The Matthew passage is with the angels. The Revelation 19 is with the saints. You can also use the Colossians 3, 4 passage that we looked at, where it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he will appear with the saints. And then all of the passages that refer to him coming in judgment, he's coming in judgment. Very descriptive. We can contrast the distinction between the first and second comings. He came on a donkey. What's he going to return on? White horse. Very good. Came from Galilee. Where's he going to come from? Heaven. Very few disciples. He's going to come with armies. All of the saints. He was rejected in the first coming. He's going to be universally worshipped. The nations rejected him. The nations will be subdued at the second coming. First coming emphasizes his crucifixion. Second coming, his crown. He came as a servant and as a savior. He's going to come as a king and a judge. So a contrast between first and second comings. This is the same slide that we contrast the two phases of his coming. The rapture as opposed to the second coming. In the rapture, we meet him in the air. And in the second coming, we return with him. During the rapture, There's no change to the Mount of Olives, and at the second coming, the Mount of Olives is split. In fact, there's no reference to the Mount of Olives in the rapture. Living saints are translated. There's no translation at the second coming. Rapture, saints go to heaven. Saints return for the kingdom, go to the kingdom at the second coming. No judgment with rapture. The world is judged at the second coming. And not everybody's pre-tribulational concerning the rapture. We are, but we also believe in a post-tribulational coming, the second coming. Now, the post-tribulationists equate the two. In other words, they don't put seven years between. The rapture is imminent. So what would you say about the second coming? Yeah, we have a specific time frame. So we could say there's lots of signs. There's a covenant. Seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Three and a half year point when he yeah. desolation, you know you have three and a half more years. Right. And you know that the two witnesses are going to be killed in three and a half years. You know that uh, the abomination that makes desolate is going to be in the middle of it. So it's going to be three and a half years. Three and a half years. You know the second coming is coming. That's if you know scripture. And then you keep your, keep your eye on the and news believe reports. It. <laughs> and as soon as the news reports broadcast, there's been a covenant signed between. Yep. Write it down. Well, hopefully we will be here when they come. Right. <laughs> Tell your friends to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's contrast between second coming and the rapture. Putting some of these things on a timeline again, we have covenant signed at the beginning. 
two prophets, I think, are raised up. Now, this is interpretive. And I think those two prophets prophesy and 144,000 respond right away. And then they go out into the world as evangelists and cause a great revival. We also saw last time the six seal judgments. I take them as a panoramic view of the whole seven years. We have conversions and then persecution of believers. It can be a very difficult time. So these are signs. These are things that precede the second coming, seven trumpet judgments, lots of cataclysms on earth, abomination in the middle, precise timing, bowl judgments. When Babylon falls, you know that it's a matter of days. When Armageddon starts, not too long, and then we have second coming. Those are the signs preceding it. 